Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Grok Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome everyone today to our episode of the Deeper Waters Podcast. I hope you're getting a recording so as are supposed to be started working on. So again, I apologize to everyone that we haven't been able to keep things up as much, but I have been doing the interviews regularly and if you're catching up, you've got a lot of good material to catch up on and today's show should be no exception to that. <clears throat> today we are going to be talking about a book that's come out recently called Core Facts by Dr. Braxton Hunter. Now, who is he? Well, according to his page, he's in, he's the former president of a conference of seven Baptist evangelists and a professor of apologetics at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Newburgh, Indiana. And he's passionate about the defense of the Christian faith in a skeptical world. For, for 33 years old, Dr. Hunter has already preached in some of the nation's largest churches while sharing the conference stage of such notables as Stephen Olford, Dr. Peter Lord, Dr. Johnny Hunt, Dr. Junior Hill, Dr. <clears throat> Jerry Vines, Dr. Fred Luther, and Dr. Bobby Welch. <clears throat> he served two churches as senior pastor in both congregations, saw dramatic growth. Battle Church, cornerstone of McMinnville, Tennessee, grew from an average worship attendance of 275 to 550 in two years. The church tripled its income under Dr. Hunter's direction. Averaged 80 baptisms per year. He was named religious leader of the year for 2004 in Warren County, Tennessee. In addition to pastoral achievements, he's conducted television crusades, successful revivals at very large and small churches alike. He has a heart for teens, speaks in high school assembly programs, and holds the attention of the entire student body, as few speakers are capable of doing. He challenges youth to a noble life devoid of drugs, alcohol, and sexual immorality. He's been a speaker for youth events with Dove Award-winning performers such as Sanctus Rear and Brit Nicole. He holds a B.A. in expository preaching, M.A. in theology, and Ph.D. in Christian apologetics, and is the author of Blinding Lights for Glory, for Glaring Evidences of a Christian Faith, Death is a Doorway, and Core Facts, the book that we're going to be talking about, and his forthcoming scholarly work, Evangelistic Apologetics, which maybe we could have him come back on and discuss that one, too. And he currently resides with his wife, Sarah, and their two daughters, Jolie and Jacqueline, in Evansville, Indiana. So, Dr. Hunter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. I'm so glad to be on and, uh, and excited about talking to you and having these listeners uh, maybe hopefully learn from what you have to say and, and uh, hear some things about evangelistic apologetics. Yeah, now, I've given your academic background here, but a lot of people might not know who you are. So, just tell us a little bit about who you as a person are. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? Sure. I, um, I, I grew up as the son of a megachurch pastor. My father pastored uh, the Mammoth 
North Jacksonville Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, then when I was about 10 years old, he went into full-time evangelism, which at the time, even then, was becoming uh, kind of a thing of the past, people being involved in itinerant preaching of that sort. And, uh, but I, I really developed a passion for it. When I was 20 years old, I pastored my first church. I've been a youth pastor, and, and as you mentioned in the bio, pastored a couple of churches and saw good growth there. But I recognized that while I have a real enthusiasm for academia, my real calling was evangelism. And so um, in 2006, I went into full-time evangelism and have been uh, involved in that in one way or another as the director of our school's evangelistic arm, Trinity Crusades for Christ, since that time. And uh, more recently, I, I've begun teaching Christian apologetics and evangelism at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Newburgh. And uh, but somewhere along the way, some of my friends from high school that I still kept in contact had uh, become atheist or, or agnostic at best. And these were people who had had a strong conservative upbringing. I mean, we, we grew up outside of Nashville, Tennessee, in a place called Lebanon, Tennessee. And um, that everything that, that Lifeway sells goes through their warehouse. Hello? Yeah, he uh, seemed to have lost him. He, he told me he was using Skype on the phone. Um, I, I apologize. In high school and had good godly parents, had... Um, had uh, rejected the faith, and so that that's uh, where some Hunter? apologetics came in. Dr. Hunter? Yes. Can you go back to when, what you came out with, keeping in touch with people from high school? We lost you for a few seconds there. Okay, sure. So, um, when, uh, when I, I, I came in contact with some of my friends from high school who I had not seen in several years, and found that, that some of them had rejected the faith and had become atheists, uh, and agnostics at least, atheists at worst. And this was very shocking to me because we came from such a conservative place. Uh, we had grown up in a very conservative part of Tennessee, and they had had a very evangelical, conservative upbringing. And so this is where some of the apologetics came in. I, uh, I really felt a need to defend my faith. And frankly, um, I never became an atheist. I never seriously started to doubt my faith to the degree that I would ever abandon my faith, however you want to say that. But what had happened was I did begin to experience some severe doubt. Mm -hmm. um, never really had much doubt with God's existence, but I did experience some, um, some doubt with uh, the resurrection. Now, it, it was never so severe. I was always able to brush it off and continue doing ministry, but it was there, and I didn't like that it was there, and I wanted to resolve that, and I wanted to ultimately know the truth. And so, uh, so I began studying Christian apologetics and started listening to debates online um, and, uh, and reading everything I could get my hands on and uh, ultimately then got into a degree program to that end and started having some debates and things like that. And uh, what for me happened was I, I recognized that though there are a lot of Christian apologists out there who are saying things that are very helpful with evangelism, I felt like there was a disconnect or at least too much of a bifurcation between the world of Christian apologetics and the world of evangelism. And so what I have tried to do with my ministry since then is to find practical ways to use apologetics um, for evangelism and seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ directly. 
not as a pre-evangelism sort of thing, as some people talk about it, although that, that sometimes happens, but as a direct evangelism strategy. And so, uh, so that's kind of the uniqueness to my ministry, if, if, if there is a uniqueness there, and, and that is the marrying, the direct marrying of evangelism and apologetics. You know, when I was reading your, uh, your biography there and thinking about what we were going to talk about on the show and talk about how the churches you pastored grew so quickly, did you uh, tie in apologetics with your sermons? You know, about the time that I was pastoring my second church, which where we really saw some dramatic growth and, um, and saw the, you know, a huge number of people baptized, especially for a small town, um, that was about the same time that the apologetics influence really became strong. I, I was aware of the theistic arguments, and I was aware of, um, of, of the resurrection cases and, and, and all of those things. But it was at that time that I really doubled down and started doing some serious work and research and, and everything. And so I, 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 it, at that time, I started mixing it, in, mixing it into my preaching, and so it probably did foster um, a methodology there because I was a pastor trying to do that. So, so that, I, I would say that, that that was a part of the process. I just wish so many pastors would get this message and say, if you preach and you include this stuff, it will draw a crowd. I mean, I'm thinking of even Tim Keller, for instance, up in New York. He's got a big church in New York of all places, and he's known for doing apologetics in his sermons. The church cannot survive if we, if we ignore the life of the mind and don't feed our flock good, solid food. I agree 100%, Nick, and part of my dissertation, my, my dissertation was um, uh, the role of apologetics in the evangelistic ministries of the Southern Baptist Convention in the mm -hmm. 21st century, and one of the things that I argue for after I wrote that dissertation to many church planters was I found that, um, that you know, church planting, particularly among Southern Baptists, and I know you have listeners that are not Southern Baptists, mm -hmm. but, um, but I found that there was a, a, a lack of apologetics uh, uh, training for many of those pastors, even though the North American Mission Board, who was over the church planting in the Southern Baptist Convention, had tried to do that and tried to foster that. There was still such a lack of apologetic knowledge and preaching among those pastors. Uh, and some are doing it right. I, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush there. But I, I agree because we know now that for every crowd of 100, uh, there are one or two people there that are either um, skeptics or are very close with someone who is a skeptic. And so I, I think that you can mix it in. In fact, I think you can mix it in even in passages of Scripture that don't seem to have a direct apologetic sort of proof text like maybe first peter three fifteen or romans one twenty might i think you can always mix apologetics in because any passage you're preaching from needs the truth of that passage needs to be defended mm -hmm. and you also speak at high schools with teenagers and such how problem how problematic do you think is the situation with skepticism amongst teenagers even in christian locations well, uh, you know, obviously from, from my background, as I said, I, I was raised um, in a, I went to a Christian high school, although I also went to a public high school for part of that time. 
I saw very little difference there among the thoughts of many of the students. Now, uh, that may have just been an abnormality in, uh, in the school that I went to, but I don't think so. I, you know, some of my friends now have, have uh, declared themselves atheists or skeptics of one type or another, and I, I think that's happening. Part of the reason that's happening um, is there is, an, there is a message from our culture, uh, and I know this sounds cliche because everyone says this, it's, but it sounds cliche because it's true. A lot of people have been saying it, is that um, the message is if you want to be an educated person, if you want to be a smart person, if you want to be a person who believes in the God of our day, which is science, well, then you have to abandon your Christianity at the door. And um, that's part of it. But then I also think a part of it is there is a strong moral uh, 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 aspect to this. I think that many students find... Um, find that there are things that they want to do, maybe when they get to college, and maybe even while they're in high school, there are many things they want to do that, frankly, it's not very comfortable for them to do if they believe in God or believe in the Christian God. And so I tend to agree with someone like Ravi Zacharias who says there is almost, if not always, some moral aspect to this thing as well. Mm -hmm. And because that is also strong uh, when someone is in higher education or even in uh, the latter years of high school, and because the pressures are so strong, uh, morally speaking, during that time, uh, I just think it is a perfect time for the enemy to attack mm-hmm. and for uh, that sort of thing to develop. Pastors, if you're listening to this, mark it down, pay attention, please. This is a reality. We can no longer deny it. And now let's get to uh, what you're mainly on here for. You've written this book, Core Facts. Okay. Why did you write this book? Well, that book really came out of uh, my uh, need, really, to, de- to develop a simple, uh, well, a somewhat simple apologetic strategy, uh, you know, for when I did internet radio debates or live public debates, but also for when I was presenting apologetic evidence at um, a local church. And so, uh, naturally, I used some of the standard theistic arguments there that William Lane Craig or others might use J.P. Moreland, people like that, and then some of the resurrection arguments that they would use and that someone like Mike Lycona or Gary Habermas mm-hmm. might use. So it's not really that there's something new in the arguments. You know, I, a lot of people criticize new apologetics books, and they say, well, it's just all the same thing. Yeah. What, is, what I tried to do with this book was to create a methodology for teaching this stuff and for lay church people who might have merely a, a high school education to be able to take these truths, understand them in a memorable way, and then be able to share them with others. And so I actually had the core facts. Uh, it, I'm sure we'll discuss this uh, more, but, but core facts is an acrostic. Each letter of mm-hmm. the phrase core facts stands for something else. And so for that reason, um, I, I was using that acrostic for several years before writing the book, everybody kept saying, you really need to write this down, you really need to write this down. Churches were telling me, if you created a book or some kind of resource with this, we would use it to teach apologetics courses at our church um, because we think it's powerful. And so uh, ultimately, I, I did that, and, um, and it has served me well uh, ever since. So uh, that's kind of how that book came about. And again, it is the desire to marry evangelism and personal evangelism in the lives of our church members with Christian apologetic evidence. And, and I do like in this book that you've got it written for the layman to read, but you've also written it in such a format like if you're teaching 
here's what you need to stress. And you've got some sidebars where you can say, this part's a little bit more difficult. If you want to come back to it later on, come back. But now just get the basics. That's right. Um, uh, the, uh, I, I put in this book these core moments boxes, which are the little asides that you're talking about. Because after I wrote the book and pretty well got it finished, I kept tweaking it and I kept going back and, and to try and make it simpler. But as you know, one of the barriers that you come up with when you are trying to write um, uh, apologetic material is there is a point where if you simplify it anymore, you're going to lose the strength of the case. Right. And um, I, I think you can make it very understandable uh, and, and very simple in that regard. But there is a point, there's a threshold that you can't cross without losing some of the edge of what you're trying to say. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to get it as, as simplified as I can, leave it there, and then add these core moments boxes that just kind of give a nutshell of what, the, of what is being discussed. And so mm -hmm. in the introduction of the book, I encourage people, if you're having trouble, just stick with those core moments boxes. Uh, whenever you have trouble, just read those, move on. Um, maybe don't even go into the, uh, maybe the sections where I deal with objections. If you're, if you're a beginner, just skip those. Come back to them later when you're more of an. Oh. No. Um, uh, Dr. Hannah. Sorry, Nick. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. What's What's happened? Uh, I I lost you for a second. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard something there in the background. Um, but uh, but are we still recording? Yep, still we are. Okay, Paul, I apologize for that. Um, so, so anyway, the, if, if you stick with these core moments boxes, you can really get the nutshell of what's being discussed. And then on top of that, um, I've tried to uh, put, as you said, a way to transition these truths for the layman at the end of each chapter. And so if uh, someone is teaching this material and they, uh, they need some quick, easy ways, maybe some illustrations, to use with the people they have that there. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've, I've really tried to do a lot with this without it losing its strength. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that it'd be so awesome if church groups would be going through books like this instead of, say, Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen or so many other people. But I've told people, if we can get our people intellectually engaged, know what they believe and why they believe it, we can start having our revolution. I think you're right. And something that I have recognized, Nick, that I don't know, I'm sure you have noticed as well, is when you start studying Christian apologetics, there are so because it is an interdisciplinary sort of thing. I mean you're gonna be you're gonna be studying a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of history, a little bit of science, a little bit of you know, and a lot of scripture and, and, and theology. Uh, because of the nature of that you're going to learn things in mm -hmm. studying Christian apologetics that is going to inform and help you with other aspects of your Christian faith and thinking in daily life. I know that as I look back at Scripture now, there are so many things that I see much, much more clearly oh, yes. uh, than I did before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've kind of, when I look at it, I think, my gosh, I can't believe the church is keeping this away from me all these yeah. years and not telling about it. Kind of like I lost math when we were in high school. Yeah. You know, yeah. we don't want to have to deal with that, but I think they'll find that it enriches every aspect of the Christian faith. 
you know, so I seem to cut out for a little bit, but yeah, it, it can look back like a, yeah, where was all this stuff growing when I was growing up? It's like there was a treasure trove that's been hidden in my Bible all these years, and I never knew it was there. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely right. Uh, I agree 100%. I, you know, I, uh, because, you know, there are so many passages that, that represent, I think, the Bible giving a defense and biblical authors giving a defense, uh, and, and not always for God's existence, for example, but, but for the resurrection and, and things like that. And, and uh, to gloss over that or to say that we shouldn't do that because it's a challenge to uh, biblical faith, I, I think is a serious problem. And also in the book, you get, and I'll say it's the most difficult part to read, but well, not because of you, you've got a debate that you use these facts in with an atheist that was a live debate. And yeah, that's why it was so difficult, because I had to read what the other guy was saying. I was going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm reading this. <laughs> yeah, well, Will, you're right. I mean, I agree with that, obviously. Will uh, was the atheist that I, that I uh, included in the book. One of the reasons he was the one that I chose was because he was, first of all, willing to have his uh, his words published there like that, and and it was a good example of the strength of the core facts, I think. But um, that was a discussion from 2009 that I included in there, <clears throat> and Will did tend to step in a lot of the atheist, uh, use a lot of the atheist bumper sticker type things, yeah. and step into a lot of the traps uh, that are there. And um, and really, the the it just served to make I think the Christian case mm -hmm. uh, clearly more powerful, um, and, and that's a good thing. You know, I try to encourage people when they read the book. All right, look, if you're a beginner, and uh, maybe all all you've read so far is something like the Case for Christ or something, uh, which is a great book oh, yeah. for people getting started. You know, um, but but if you're if you're in that station and you read this and you get to the debate, don't imagine that all of your conversations with friends and family who are doubting or who are skeptical are going to go like this, because while I don't think that Will's case holds up, it is a little bit more technical than what some average lay people are going to give. Okay, well, let's start talking about the core facts some here. Let's start with, how about the beginning? C, what is C? Okay, the C in core facts uh, is the, it represents a cosmological argument, specifically the Kalam cosmological argument that we're used to hearing from people like J.P. Holding, William Lane Craig, and others in debates and things like that. And so I just, I just uh, had the C stand for cause, the universe has a cause. Um, as we begin walking through these, it would be helpful to point out that um, the core facts has an element to it that helps with the ability to remember these things. The word core has to do with the arguments for God's existence. And then the word facts has to do with the case for the resurrection. So um, if, if you're someone like, say, Gary Habermas, Mike Lycona, perhaps yourself, you know, and, and you, you don't like to talk too much about some of the science uh, aspects of, of uh, the, the arguments for God's existence, you can just uh, leave the core arguments out and just go with facts and talk about right. the facts of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's helpful to keep in mind as we walk through these. But so um, the, in, in the uh, first letter, uh, the word cause, the universe had a cause, I try to point out that um, to, to lay people when I'm discussing this, and of course in the book, uh, that, um, that everything that we experience in reg as a regular aspect of daily life 
that begins to happen or starts to exist has a cause for why it happened or started to exist. A good example that I use is when my oldest daughter was nine years old. I remember I had tossed her a ball, a very soft ball, to see if she had developed the dexterity to catch the ball. And um, it hit her in the head and she fell over. Now, this is not a good ex experiment to do <laughs> with a nine-year-old or nine-month-old, but she's fine. She was fine. But she did something very interesting after she sat herself back up or rolled over. She looked for what had caused her to fall over, and she saw the ball. And then she did something even more impressive than that that tells me that my daughter's going to be a philosopher. She looked for what caused the ball to fly through the air, causing her to fall down. And so she recognized, even before she could really formulate an intelligible word, that things, things are parts of causal chains, mm -hmm. and that there is a cause for things that begin to happen or start to exist. And so for that reason, I point that out with uh, church people and, and lay church people and as a part of explaining the argument that we, that many probably listening to your show know so well, that the universe, begin, everything that begins to exist must have a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe must have a cause for its existence. You know, so I point that out uh, in defense of that premise, that we all know that when things start to happen or begin to exist, that they have a cause for why they start to happen or begin to exist. And I think that that really is something that is, if not properly basic, uh, pretty close to it when we look at our daily lives. Yeah, and I think it's really important that you stress that if you're not a scientist type and you don't go into science projects, that you don't have to go there. Because for me, my arguments for God's existence are more metaphysics than science. But if you are a science type, then hey, you can go there. You can look into this. You can enjoy it. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I go into some of that science stuff, even though I'm not a scientist uh, I, in, the, in handling objections, because there are objections there, and I want it to be somewhat comprehensive. But that's one of the strengths, I think, of uh, particularly the, the cosmological argument I've included, is that you can explain this to someone, and all of the pertinent evidence that they need to understand in order for the case to work is already there in their mind. You know, they recognize that things have causes. They recognize that the universe must have had uh, to have a moment when it began to exist, um, and we can show them that with other evidence that's in the book. And, but, that, but, they can, but once you point that evidence out to them, they realize that, it, that it's already there, it's already available to them, uh, and, and they can understand all of that without yeah, looking into a science book once for, for any data to support it. Because it's all it's all uh, philosophy that they are aware of if they just think about it for a moment. Yeah, but let's get to some objections to that though, because a skeptic curriculum say, "Well, you're looking at what's caused this universe, and why jump to a god suddenly, especially a god we can't detect by science." Sure. Um, it's interesting because I just had a discussion with a former Southern Baptist who recently embraced atheism, and I've been trying to reach out to him, and this was his point, and it is a common atheist objection as well. You're just, this is just God of the gaps, right? You know, the yeah. God of the gaps spouse, you don't know what the cause is. So just like ancient people might have looked at lightning and said that, oh, that's God or God's being angry and throwing lightning bolts. So you know, it's a God of the gaps. You don't have all the evidence. You don't have the answers. So you just postulate a God. 
And I don't think that's what we have at all on the cosmological argument we've included here. And the reason for that is because as you think about the implications of the formal argument uh, that we're used to hearing, the implications are, well, if there was a cause for the universe coming into existence, there are certain things we know must be true about that cause. Um, so, for example, we know that if something is not going, can't bring itself into existence, then whatever the cause is, it was not comprised of the things that we find in the physical universe. Mm -hmm. And the physical universe is made up of three things, generally speaking, time, space, and matter or energy. And so, um, so when you think about that, then whatever the cause must have been, it must have been a spaceless, non-material, and uh, timeless, or I like to use the word eternal, which is what I define the word eternal as, as timelessness, uh, cause. And so when you think about it that way, that means that we know something already about what the cause must have been. The cause must have been uh, a spaceless, timeless, non-material. And then, of course, as, as Christian apologists often point out, uh, that it had to have a mind because it had to decide to create something from nothing. Now, the common objection to that, of course, is, well, uh, how, how do we know that uh, there aren't other things that, that are not minds, disembodied minds, that, that couldn't have caused the universe to exist? And so, um, as you're aware, Nick, you know, lots of times Christian apologists will point out that, well, there, there are things that may be like that that exist necessarily outside of the physical universe, uh, like, um, like uh, mathematical ideas or numbers or abstract things, like, you know, the, uh, the, the laws of logic, for example. But those things don't have causal powers. They can't do anything. And so what you need is something that fits all those categories, timeless, spaceless, non-material, but also does have causal powers and can uh, can bring something into existence from nothing. Mm -hmm. And so the, uh, uh, the, uh, the when you frame all that up, you get something that very much looks like the God that we see in, in Scripture. And so um, all of that, if a, if a person will think about it, and maybe if they're listening to your show and this is the first time they've really uh, heard it phrased that way, they might, they might think, well, that sounds a little bit heavy. But I think if people will think about it, all of that information, all of those ideas, all those truths are immediately available to them. They don't have to uh, go consult anyone. Those things are things that we can realize if we just think about it for a moment. And so I think that simplicity of it uh, speaks to the case. So the bottom line, I don't think that this is a God of the gaps. I think uh, instead of a God of the gaps where we have no evidence for what the cause is, we actually have some evidence for what the cause is. And when you plug in that data, I think you get theism. Okay, well, let's go to another favorite objection here. And it's for typical Sunday school objection, which shows me many atheists haven't grown out of Sunday school thinking, unfortunately, which is, well, if you're going to say God caused the universe, then who caused God? <laughs> That's right. That, that is good. And it's good that we're covering these. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to cover these things in the book is because this is what I refer to as bumper sticker atheism. And, uh, and it, you know, this is the kind of thing you're going to get from looking at online forums and blog articles and things that are, that are very surface level. Because there is a simple answer to why God does not require a cause and why he is self-sufficient in that way. And uh, one of the, I mean, the reason that, that I often point to is this. In order for something to need to have a beginning or an end, you have to have an existence that is temporal, like our physical universe. Mm -hmm. And as we said just a moment ago, since it is the case that God exists, uh, existed 
uh, outside of the physical universe. Uh, that is to say, though you can't really say before the beginning of the universe, because before is a temporal word too, but because he is the cause of the physical universe and brought it into existence, he exists timelessly. Um, though it is hard for us to imagine, and this is not a Christian theistic belief mm -hmm. only, this is something that physicists who do believe that the universe began to exist also recognize, and philosophers recognize, that this existence must have been timeless. And so if it's timeless, then you don't need a beginning, and to even say that you need a beginning is nonsense, because mm -hmm. it's timeless, and so God exists necessarily. And so that, that, that I think, handles that objection nicely. Yeah, but someone else can also say that, but a God who's able to do everything you say, that kind of God must be really complex, which we're kind of getting into the Richard Dawkins, as opposed to the Boeing 747 argument. Right, yes, this, this is another objection. I, you know, the, the, I was discussing with Will, uh, the, the atheist that was included in the book, I have an actual podcast on BraxTunner.com where I had a debate with him about the cosmological argument. And he uses sort of an Occam's razor sort of approach. You know, he said, look, um, you know, God may handle, you know, the, the beginning of the universe uh, in the way you described, but at the same time, this would make the whole situation infinitely more complex because a God like that would have to be infinitely complex. And, and I, I think that that um, really sidesteps the conundrum because, after all, um, if the evidence points to this sort of a being, then whatever you want to say about its complexity mm -hmm. is really a secondary issue to the question of whether that being exists. Um, and so, uh, so I, you know, I, I don't think that that objection stands. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, we're going to move on to the next level, and O is for order. And this is that the universe has order to it. And you said something of a Starbus chapter that really surprised me, and it's the kind of thing that I've been saying for a while, and I wanted to take note that someone else was saying it as well. And that was to uh, not really worry about evolution. And you say, I realize that this comes as somewhat of a letdown for many readers. Many professional Christian defenders are frustrated by the fact that the evolution debate is a central issue about which outsiders seem to think our discipline focuses. It is not. Likewise, outsiders are often frustrated by the fact that some Christian thinkers refuse to deal with this hotly debated issue. Clearly, this is an interesting and valid area of study for defenders, but it serves to congest and confuse the O argument. Especially when the evangelism is in view, believers should not involve themselves in secondary issues which will likely do a disservice to the teleological truth they are attempting to explain. Yes, I, I think that is an important thing. When I teach Christian apologetics at Trinity Seminary, I, I point that out because I realize that there are some people who pick up an apologetics book or go to a conference or sign up for a class in seminary, and what they're expecting, because they've been exposed to so much of guys like Ken Ham, Kent Hovine, and the younger creationist authors, is they expect, um, and are somewhat let down when they find out that it's not the case, they expect that, um, Christian apologetics is all about evolution, and of course it's not, you know, mm -hmm. um, and the reason that I say to sidestep it is not because I'm a theistic evolutionist, because I'm not yeah. a theistic evolutionist, yeah. um, and I enjoy talking about the subject of evolution as a layperson on those things. Nevertheless, the reason I try to avoid that discussion when I can and encourage people to do that is twofold. First of all, um, this, the argument stands without ever getting into that. 
You know, I'm constantly shocked when you have a Christopher Hitchens-style um, atheist who says, well, all this design stuff, I mean, God, I mean, uh, evolution handles all of that. You know, we've got that figured out. Well, first of all, we don't have that figured out. But, but the fact is, design still exists in the universe. Order still exists in the universe outside of biological life here on Earth. Yeah. I mean, why is it that everything is so fi seemingly fine-tuned uh, during the, the early moments of, of the universe from what we know? Why is it that things are so seemingly well fine-tuned for life mm. uh, to be sustainable on Earth? So design, I think, uh, an order still stands without that. That's right. one reason. And then another reason is because I know that in speaking to uh, lay Christians, who really I'm trying to reach with this book, um, when, when they're dealing with their skeptical friends and coworkers, and they don't have a degree in biology or something, they, they are going to get sidetracked and derailed from the real thrust of these uh, teleological arguments. Getting into this and then this issue about evolution can devolve into what should be taught in the public school classroom mm -hmm. and all these kind of things. And really, such a lay person may be out of their element, depending on the skeptic they're talking to. Mm -hmm. So why not just avoid that issue, worry about that yeah. later on if that's an important issue for you, and just focus right now on the truth of God's existence, which is the point of the argument anyway. Yeah, it's been my stance on this issue that I don't consider myself a theistic evolutionist because when it comes to science, I couldn't make a case for or against because I'm not a scientist. And I had John Barton on my show last year. In fact, probably about a year or so ago, it was June 22nd of last year. And that interpretation of Genesis 1, it doesn't even answer, did evolution happen or not? It just says, here's why creation took place. And so there I say, yeah, I'll just go and I'll leave that to the scientists. And then I can go to the atheists now and say, yeah, okay, I can grant you this for the sake of argument. Now you give me your real argument against what I believe. And where I see the worst case scenario... I'd lose inerrancy. That is the worst case scenario. But I'm not trying to get people to believe inerrancy. I'm trying to get them to believe Jesus rose from the dead. Right, and I, I don't want to derail us from our discussion about the order argument, but you know that you said something there that I, I really try to stress, which is that, um, again, the, the point of this argument is not inerrancy, although I'm an inerrantist. Yep, same uh, here. And, and I'm confident you are. Yep. And, I, and the, the point in this case is God's existence, so let's stay focused. Now, on inerrancy, you know, one of the things I'm constantly shocked about is you got a guy like uh, Bart Ehrman, who ultimately says that he left the faith um, either only because of or initially because he found what he considered to be a contradiction scripture. And I think about the old web of beliefs uh, way of looking at your worldview where the center of the web, the things that you place at the center of the web, are the most critical and most important aspects of your belief, things like your own existence. If you found out that you yourself don't exist, well, then your worldview would probably fall apart. Yeah. Um, and, and what we place closest to that center is the most important. So, um, you know, I, I place uh, things like God's existence and the truth of the resurrection closer to the center than I do biblical inerrancy, because if I found out tomorrow that the Bible was inerrant, and I will argue tooth and nail for inerrancy, but if I found out tomorrow the Bible was inerrant, it would not mean that God doesn't exist, and it wouldn't mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, although it would have a profound impact on my worldview in other areas. Uh -huh. What it looks like happened in Bart Ehrman's case is he put 
inerrancy, closer to the center of his web of beliefs mm. than belief in the resurrection, which is going to have serious uh, repercussions if he comes to believe he found a contradiction in Scripture. And, and so I just think that is a serious problem. And, in that, and, so, that, you know, and so what you do with inerrancy uh, is an important issue uh, for the things. But when we're, taught, we're arguing specifically for God's existence, I think that can uh, be a way that atheists try to trip us up and derail us from what we're getting at. Right. Well, how about the order? Just briefly, what kind of order are you talking about that tells you God exists? Well, you know, the uh, uh, one of the popular teleological arguments that we see, and teleological just means uh, ends or purpose, you know, it's, 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 there's purpose and order in the universe. And um, so you, you have several options here. Uh, the universe became so seemingly fine-tuned for life um, only because of uh, a, a few different ways. It, it could have happened... Uh, it could have happened of necessity, that is to say, it just had to be this way. It could not have been otherwise. Or it could be that it's because of chance. It just happened this way by chance, and we're just really fortunate that even though we know now that it seems like the chances of this happening this way are, are to say astronomical is, is to put it far, far too, uh, too mildly, uh, exponentially far too mildly. Or it happened because of uh, intelligent design. Mm -hmm. And so when you walk through those, and I don't want to give away the whole book, but as you walk through those, each of those things, as Christian apologists like, like Craig will do, you find that um, the only one that really can be sustained is something like uh, uh, intelligent, or is intelligent design. Now, uh, there are objections to this, naturally, and one of those objections is they're seemingly random and uh, a fortune. Okay, lost you again here. Uh, okay, Dr. Home, we lost you, so you... Uh, tend to debate. Be ex I'm sorry, go ahead. You, you, we heard you say we tend to be random fluctuations and such, and then we lost you. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, okay, so, so the argument is uh, someone like Craig might give an argument like this that says that the um, universe is so seemingly well... Uh, fine-tuned for life, either because of necessity, chance, or intelligent design. And when you walk through those, you just find that um, that intelligent design is the only viable option. Now, objection: there are objections that will come to this, and one that comes is there are random things that happen all the time that seem to be uh, that don't seem to be the result of design. And in my 2010 debate with Daniel Alvarez uh, in Miami on this issue, uh, he, he said something like the lottery is a great example of this. We don't say that someone, we ho at least we hope, that nobody was directing the lottery such that the person that wins is the one who wins. Uh, it was just random. But from their perspective, they're going to view it as uh, being intelligently designed. They're going to say, well, God wanted me to win, or this was, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, some some kind of luck that I had, you know, luck in a, in a, meta in a sense that, you know, there was some intention behind it, some sort of uh, 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 some, something was at work such that I would win this beyond me, and I don't know what it is, but there was a purpose. I, you know, I'm, I'm not just lucky in, in, the, in a basic sense of that. And, of course, the response to that is, well, but in the lottery, someone has to win. Right? <laughs> someone has mm -hmm. to win. We know that someone is going to win when, if the lottery is played and, and, and everything goes the way it should. 
in the same way someone says, well, you're just the, the fortunate and lucky recipient of life when there were millions of sperm cells and, and, and uh, uh, lots of eggs and you were just the fortunate recipient of the egg and the sperm joining that resulted in you. Well, okay, but the fact is that some human being was going to be born from that. Uh, but the fact is with intelligent design or, or with the design of the universe um, argument and this, this complexity that we find, it's not the case that anything had to come out of this that would be life-supporting. And so I think that the point fails because what we're talking about is not just something incredibly unlikely, but something that is incredibly unlikely that also has uh, specified complexity. And so uh, the classic, uh, you know, example of this would be any arrangement of cards you get dealt when you're playing uh, Texas Hold'em, for example, is equally unlikely. But when you get the perfect hand to win the game every time, then that seems to have some specified complexity to it on top of being incredibly unlikely. And so I, I just think these objections tend to fail. Yeah, we're going to have to move on quickly because I want to save the last hour for the last half. So let's go to the R, rules. What kind of rules are we talking about? Well, this, many people who are familiar with uh, apologetics already will recognize this as an, a moral argument. Mm -hmm. um, and so it seems that uh, we have moral rules, so to speak, values and duties um, that, that we seem to recognize as being objective. And in the book, I try to really break all this down, though it sounds like right now we're, we're using some heavy philosophical terms at times. Um, I tell people in the book, if you have trouble understanding objective versus subjective things, just think about objective things as being matters of fact and subjective things as being matters of opinion. So your favorite flavor of ice cream is subjective. I mean, that's a matter of opinion of what's the best flavor of ice cream. But whether, uh, whether or not 2 plus 2 equals 4 is objective. It's a matter of fact that it does. I don't and know so about that. that. Reason, I, I think something... I think ice cream having to include peanut butter being the best would be an objective fact at that point. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you think that peanut butter is objectively the best flavor? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, I say the same thing about I don't think it's subjective whether bald-headed men or uh, men with hair are more attractive. I think bald-headed men are clearly more attractive. Mm -hmm. but, but, um, but, but ultimately, these things are subjective matters of opinion. And so with the moral argument, all we want to say is... Uh, that, uh, that moral values and duties, things like that it's wrong to torture uh, children for fun, uh, that that is objectively true, that that is wrong, in the same sense that uh, 2 plus 2 equals 5 is objectively wrong. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we want to argue that. And the only way you get that is if there is a God, because if there's not a God, then who's to say that it's wrong to, uh, to torture children for fun? It would just be a matter of opinion. It would be subjective. So if you have... Um, the feeling that it is objective or you believe that it's objective, well, the only way you get that is if there is a God, as far as I can tell. And so, uh, so that's the argument for R in, in the word core. Uh, the R is for rules. There seem to be rules for humans to live by, moral rules. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what about, I mean, with this, if a person says that, well, well, we as a society, we make our own rules. We determine what's good ourselves. Um, you know, guys like Sam Harris and, and other atheists like him who try to, uh, uh, to come up with a framework for morality 
and then either claim that it is objective or admit that it's subjective but say that it's functional, uh, th that's how these objections are going to come. I, I think that those fall because if we make up rules, for example, I think now we're actually legalizing marijuana in, in several places in the United States, but let's, let's imagine that marijuana was illegal across uh, the Fruited Plains, and so we said, um, it's, it's, uh, we decided as a society that the buying and selling of marijuana is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Well, you find out that that's subjective the minute you get on a plane and fly to Amsterdam where the buying and selling of marijuana is, uh, is considered to be a, a morally neutral or a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so you find that where you're at and whose laws are in play uh, uh, clearly demonstrate that this is a subjective framework whenever we try to come up with our own ideas about morality. Now, if someone wanted to say, well, okay, we just admit that it's subjective, but we live this way. Um, in, in that case, you, that's fine. I mean, you can do that, and you can have laws, and you can put someone in prison for molesting children, for example, even though you say that it's not objectively wrong. Mm -hmm. But when you do something like that, then you put yourself in a situation where I think on the one hand are denying reality, and on the other hand have to admit, which most people have a hard time doing, that these things uh, are not good or bad. Words like good or bad don't have any real meaning anymore in an ultimate sense, uh, but we're just kind of creating our own system. And then a lot of times this falls apart whenever you point out to someone that if that is the case, that we just come up with our own subjective ideas. Um, I think you know one of the things that a lot of apologists point out is that if, for example, you had uh, Adolf Hitler winning World War II, uh, it may be, and then exterminating anyone who disagrees with him, we might get to the point where everyone on earth at this point thinks that it's a good thing to, uh, to commit genocide. But of course, we would have to then on this subjective framework say, yeah, we, we consider that to be a good thing. But of course, that's not a good thing. And we all know that. And why do we all know that? We all know that because we all know that, that morality is objective in this sense. And so, uh, so that's kind of how the argument goes, and I think that those objections fail. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's go on to the next one, the E, and this could be one of the more controversial ones, and it's one that I get a bit hesitant on. Uh, before, I did have a guest on three weeks ago, and I hope that's going to be ever. Joseph Hinman wrote a book, The Trace of God, on how religious experience is a, a pointer to theistic belief, a justification for it, but... This is your argument that you can have an immediate experience of God. And, you know, like I said, I'm still a bit hesitant on this one, so what are we talking about here? Okay, where this can be problematic as far as I'm concerned, because I sympathize with you um, yeah. uh, on wanting to be leery about this, where I think this can be problematic is if you're saying that your personal subjective conscious experience of the world um, uh, leading you to believe in God, or you think you've had some experience of God, uh, therefore means that uh, for other people that you talk to, they should accept that as evidence. I don't think that. I, I don't necessarily think that that's a slam dunk case. Now, I will say this. I I'm a classical apologist. Mm -hmm. From a cumulative case perspective, I think that would serve as a good piece of data, not an argument, but a good piece of data that requires explanation in, in a cumulative case because right. Um, even though you could just say, well, everybody's delusional in their experience of God, their supposed experience of God. Um, it still is something that's true about reality that people, that millions, perhaps billions of people claim to have had experiences with God. 
And so we have to explain that, and I think it, it, it fits very well in a Christian uh, worldview. I don't think it fits well at all in an, in an atheistic worldview, but I don't use it that way. I don't say that my own experience of God should serve as powerful enough evidence for someone else that they should believe on the basis of that, like I would in the, in the three previous arguments we've discussed. Mm-hmm. But having given the three previous arguments, I think it's a good point now to say, all right, look, if, if these arguments have served to make you open at all to the, the, the existence of God, then you can go ahead, why not go ahead and try to explore the possibility of having an experience with him mm-hmm. and, um, and then knowing that he, uh, that he exists because you're experiencing his communication in your own life. Now, I would imagine that you, Nick, uh, and, and any Orthodox Christian would agree that at least for the individual himself, when he experiences the inner working of the Holy Spirit, that serves as internal evidence, at least for that one person, that the truth of the Christian message is, is, is valid. And so, um, and so what, what I do with that is really just to use that as a point to set up what we're going to move into next, which will be the arguments for the resurrection. Yeah, I think it's and so, uh, so that, that's kind of how I use that. And I think it's a great point to, uh, a, a great moment to, uh, to have people kind of share their own experience of God with people. And if that does work uh, to help uh, convince people a little bit or, or, or add more credibility, well, then that's fine, too. But really, it's just an invitation for people to explore more deeply as we move into the resurrection arguments. Yeah, I do think it should always be considered as data. Everything, essentially, is data, one way or another. I mean, when the Mormons come and knock on my door and they say, I have a burning in the bosom that tells me Joseph Smith is a prophet and the Book of Mormon is the true testimony of the ancient people in this world and such, and that this is a restored gospel, things of that sort. Well, yeah, I'm not going to look at them and say, you don't have that experience. No, you don't. Of course they have the experience. I have no reason to think they're all lying about it. And so, of course, I understand they interpret that as data. But if that's all they have, there's going to be a problem. And if that's all a Christian has is their own internal testimony of some sort, that's also going to be a problem. And so I, I like how you said that it has to be a cumulative case, because C.S. Lewis even one time said that when you're going forward with your church group and you're doing evangelism, let your arguers go forward first. Verbal ones that will destroy the intellectual roadblocks. Then have people come forward to have really powerful testimonies and let them share that. That's right. I, I you know, I think that uh, as if this was a standalone sort of thing, I would be against it. I'm the first mm-hmm. to preach that um, that if you say that you believe just purely on a fideistic sort of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, without any evidence at all, well, then that's no better than what Hindus are going to say or Mormons are going to say or Muslims are going to say, and you, mm-hmm. you're just fortunate that you happen to, happen to be a Christian and you mm-hmm. got the right one, but your reason for it um, in terms of justifiable warrant isn't any better on that And so, uh, from an from a, from a outsider's perspective. And so uh, I think it's, it's an important piece, um, just like I would say that the burning in the bosom for a Mormon is an important piece, if they had powerful evidence on top of that to justify that. And so, um, so, so you know, I, I would only ever bring this after bringing other apologetic evidence like we've been discussing. Yeah, because, of course, if this is all you have, the uh, atheist could just tell you, and he could have a fair case for doing something. You know, if this is just psychological 
something going on, you hear you hear something, it feel it sounds really good, it makes you happy, and you interpret that as a divine experience. And if that was just the basis of it, then yeah, he might really have something there because there's no doubt people do that with many things. Absolutely, and this is really one of the reasons why I'm not a cumulative case, uh, properly speaking, you know, a, a Douglas Gruthius or a Gruthouse uh, sort of uh, cumulative case apologist, because even though I appreciate those guys and I think they, they do a lot of good and they present good data, um, if, if it is the case that uh, some of these pieces of data are leaky buckets, like the E in Corfax would be if it was a standalone piece, mm -hmm. uh, then yeah, the atheist would be... I mean, he could be perfectly fine saying, okay, you think you had an experience, but you didn't. Okay, you think free will exists, but it doesn't. You think morality exists, but it doesn't. You know, and going through like that, he would be justified in, in doing that, I think. So I, I include it because we are more than just intellectual beings. We are experiential and emotional beings as well. And so I think it's good to have something in there like that um, as long as you still do the intellectual side of things justice. Yeah, and I also find too many Christians on our side of me start talking about their uh, personal experiences and the testimonies that they receive and such. They do what I often call as punting to the Holy Spirit. It's where we say, well, this is what the text of the scripture says, and if you disagree, or you just need to ask the Holy Spirit to show you. You need to be listening to the Spirit more often. And as I always tell my wife, be very, very careful when someone comes to you and says, God told me X. Always, always be on guard against that. Right, right, right. It, you know, I know you want to kind of keep a pace here moving, but, yeah. uh, you know, the, the atheist I mentioned earlier that I've been talking with, who was a former Southern Baptist, mm -hmm. you know, he said, I, one of the things I asked him after we had talked about all the evidence and stuff, I said, well, when you were a pastor, writing sermons and praying and, and all that, did you never genuinely believe that you experienced communication from God via the Holy Spirit? And he said, well, he said, I, I, I was raised Presbyterian before I became a Southern Baptist. And he said, there, I didn't hear all this talk about God told me such and such and that mm -hmm. sort of mystical side of things. And so I never even really thought that way as a pastor. Well, I told him, I said, while I do think God communicates with us, I, re I obviously really believe that. I think the most obvious and common way that happens is through the reading of his word and seeing what his Absolutely. will is written in his word Absolutely. and appropriating that to your life. Um, now, I'm, I'm probably a little bit mystical than some. I, I do think there have been times in my life where something was a little bit too suspicious or a little bit too direct uh, for me to think that God wasn't communicating with me. But those are times like my personal salvation, my... my uh, uh, belief that God wanted me to marry my wife, that I was supposed to go into a, another area of ministry, but it's it's an, it's not a regular thing. So I share that concern yeah. with you that when someone's going around all the time saying, God told me X, Y, and Z, uh, we need to be careful about, about that. Yeah, uh, my own wife has had a few experiences like that, and she said, do you see me like a, one of those TV preachers? I'm not like one of them on you. said, no, hon, you're not, but if you start going around and saying those kinds of things on a regular basis, yeah, I'm going to be raising up some big concerns at that point. <laughs> right, right. And amusingly, when I encounter a lot of atheists who like to go after Christians who give their 
personal testimony and such, and especially if they're ex-Christians. And, and so, you know, I'm sure when you were a Christian, you were going out there and, and they're, they're talking about how they uh, used to believe all this, and then they embraced reason or whatever it is, and they saw the lie. And so, you know, I'm sure when you were out there going out and doing evangelism as a Christian, you used your personal testimony, and it probably didn't have much effect on a lot of people. Uh, why do you think it, that position where suddenly change when you start giving it in giving an atheist testimony instead? Yeah, and, and I think the, the mistake that the atheist will make is to characterize Christian apologists as as that being our only case, mm -hmm. when of course that may be some TV preacher's only case, but it's not our only case. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm constantly shocked whenever, you know, when the movie Religulous came out with Bill Maher, you know, oh, attack on Christianity. And uh, he went to a, a, a truck stop on the yes. side of the road somewhere in middle America and went to a chapel that had been built there for truckers to go to church on Sunday morning. And that's where he went to ask Christians what their apologetic evidence was. Now, I don't think there's, I'm not saying anything negative about truckers there, but why not go to a professional Christian apologist like, uh, you know, like one of us like, or like William Lane Craig, or, I mean, that's, that's one of the places I would go if I was trying to get the best evidence uh, the best case to find out uh, what Christians have. But when you go someplace like that, yeah, you're going to get mostly experiential sort of things, but that's not all we've got. And if an atheist characterizes us as only having that, and we're all fideistic, as Will tried to do in my discussion in the book with him, well, then and that's, I just don't think that's the atheist being fair mm -hmm. in the discussion. Well, right now, if you're listening... You know, just tuning in or something. I'm interviewing Dr. Braxton Hunter. We're talking about his book, Core Facts. Now, next week, though, I'm going to be interviewing Donald Williams. We're going to be talking about a book he wrote, I read several years ago, called Mere Humanity, the uh, ideas of Chesterton, Lewis, and Tolkien on the human condition. Should be a very interesting interview, so I hope you'll be tuning in next week to hear Donald Williams talking about mere humanity. But now we get Dr. Braxton Hunter. We're talking about the book Core Facts. And now we're getting into the last part of our show, that last half, and we're going to be talking about the facts related to the resurrection. Now the F stands for Fader. It, it really saddens me that we have to bring this out today. It, it saddens me that we even have to tell people that Jesus really existed today, but let's go ahead and get into the Fader. Okay, um, and this is this is something that I know is close to your heart, Nick, and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, I, I really love this side of things because for Christians who want to um, get into apologetics, often they end up first running into something that, that has to do with the theistic arguments, and you know, I, I, this is another thing you can do with the book, is, is if, if someone wants to start out in an area where they have more um, uh, prerequisite knowledge, it might be good to start with the facts with a person like that, mm -hmm. because they deal with the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And Christians have a, if they've been in the church for very long, already have some awareness of, uh, of who Jesus is and, of course, what some of the scriptural data is on this. And so, um, so I, I, I think that'd be a good thing to keep in mind. Yes, the F facts has to do with the uh, that, that Jesus' wounds on the cross were fatal, 
That is to say that he really did die by Roman crucifixion. And uh, it may be difficult to talk about some of this uh, on the podcast because what I've done is to put a lot of the um, evidence and data and, and quotes from historians and things like that in the body of the book. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but uh, in, in a very simple way, uh, we're just claiming that we know that Jesus did die by Roman crucifixion so much as we can know anything um, about uh, ancient history from, uh, from doing proper historiography. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people, though, who will say, well, there were people, though, who survived crucifixion. I mean, Josephus even talks about one, so why should we be convinced that Jesus really did die? Well, one of the reasons is because um, we have really good... You know, this is something that I think often gets uh, glossed over in uh, by atheists, and it is that they say, well, the, the evidence that we really have from within Scripture uh, shouldn't count because, I mean, after all, it's got a strong Christian bias. Well, there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. One is that uh, the Scripture that we have is, uh, these are primary sources, or at least very close to primary sources, um, on the life of Jesus. And uh, this would also go for uh, even more so, I think, for, uh, for something like 1 Corinthians, which I think we date to the mid-50s A.D., and so I think that's very early. And anyone who knows that if this writer ever written a dissertation or written a research paper knows that you want to get the best, earliest sources that you can possibly get. And so that's very fair for us to do that and go to Scripture with that. Um, now, you don't want to just presuppose that one gospel account is true or something. And so uh, one of the reasons that we believe that these things are true is because they have some things that historians use to, uh, to, to try and get at the truth. So, for example, um, we have multiple independent attestation. Even if you think that some of the gospel writers shared sources and things like that, we still have, uh, we still have several sources. We have uh, Paul as an independent source. And then we have um, uh, extra-biblical sources that I listed in the book that, um, that, that speak about uh, the Jews having killed their king and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think that multiple attestation is one aspect of this. Another aspect of this is uh, uh, the principle of embarrassment. This comes up a lot, you know, that uh, if you're making something up and you're trying to start a religion, you're not going to say things that are going to be personally embarrassing for you. Um, but yet we have uh, the uh, writers of the New Testament saying things about Jesus. We find that, that after the crucifixion, they were absolutely bewildered and didn't know what to think or do about this. Um, people were expecting a Davidic Messiah, and yet we find uh, this was a different case, and, um, and this person was humiliated. And so uh, this, uh, this is another element that we use is the principle of in embarrassment, and uh, of course, you know, we have women finding uh, Jesus, uh, the first to recognize that Jesus is alive at the tomb, and so uh, in that time, that, that wouldn't have been the choice you would make, as Christian apologists often point out, uh, that would have been personally embarrassing to the men that were involved as his followers, and so these are some of the tools we use. Now, N.T. Wright points out, and I include this in the book, that to say that a Roman uh executioner would have made a mistake or failed somehow in his uh, attempt to make sure that Jesus as a revolutionary was dead on the cross 
is really just uh, not only ad hoc, that's not saying it strongly enough, but just isn't understanding the I, I think uh, all of this goes together to present a situation where we can be confident, at the very least, that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. I mean, this is why you are denying this because, of course, the Quran teaches that he did not die and they did not crucify him. So it's making a little bit of a comeback, but this is really something that uh, we don't we don't really have much reason to be skeptical about. In fact, I also like to point out that uh, Strauss, se several years ago, well over a century ago, pointed out that uh, if Jesus had been crucified, which he did agree with, came out of a tomb, and went to his disciples, and suddenly proclaimed himself the Lord of Life. If a swim free was true, they wouldn't have accepted him as a lord of life. They would have called him a doctor instead. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what I've done, and so in that chapter of the book, I've put a lot of those kind of quotes and things like that in there. Uh, and, and we have some admission from atheists and agnostic scholars who, um, who affirm the, uh, the death uh, of Jesus on the cross. Now, of course... Uh, just like with the E in core fact, that, that wouldn't be enough on its own. You can't just quote right. a few uh, atheist scholars and say, well, there's the case. And we have supplied a lot of other evidence to sort of enrich that. But uh, that's all there, too. So I, I think we have a compelling case there for the death of Jesus. Okay. Now, after that, you go into the A, the appearances. And this is usually one of the most important parts of a case. What do the appearances have to do? Okay, well, uh, we know from uh, the text that, uh, talking about the Gospels and 1 Corinthians, that Jesus appeared to various groups of people um, over a somewhat, you know, relatively brief period of time. Uh, but specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul references that he appeared to 500 plus people, including Paul himself. Now, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's important to point out here that this is one of our earliest texts. I mean, this is this is dated uh, to the mid '50s A.D. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Gary Habermas and Mike Lycona have a great book where they uh, where they argue for uh, this First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 verses three and following three through six A or B there that um, that this was a you know this is the creed of the early church. I mean that's accepted mm -hmm. most by most people, but that it that it actually goes back to within. I think they say three to five years of the events surrounding the resurrection, uh, the alleged resurrection, the resurrection. And so, um, so this was something that we know early Christians believed uh, from, from within the first few years. And of course, I would say they believed this uh, from, from the jump, you know, as, as soon as Jesus appeared. But, but we, we have good evidence that they believed it from at least three to five years after the events. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is important. Because, and, and really, you mentioned, I think, in your review of this, that, this, that the C in Corfax actually resembles a lot the A in Corfax or something like that. I think that's because the two somewhat support each other, because the C in Corfax has to do with the commitment level of the early church. And one of the reasons we can be confident on top of the other evidence that Jesus really did appear 
is that these people who he mm -hmm. appeared to were willing, at least, to put their lives on the line mm -hmm. and uh, die for something that they that they would have known was false or wouldn't have any good reason to believe, at least. And so I think those two serve to support each other a little bit. If anyone's wondering more about the uh, creator aspect and Mike's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach, he's got a section there with proliferous, a proliferous footnote about scholars from non-Christian perspectives quite often dating the creed to an early, early time. Yeah, that's, uh, obviously, everyone needs to have Mike's book on their on their bookshelf. I mean, that is, as far as I'm concerned, the definitive work, modern work on, on this subject. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's doing exactly what, what we do, what we, what we do with every point of the facts uh, in the core facts, which is to say that this is not just something that Christian scholars believe in. This is mm -hmm. something that New Testament scholars uh, 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 largely believe. Not, not necessarily that people had uh, actually had an experience of Jesus appearing to them, because, of course, atheist uh, uh, scholars are not going to say that, but to mm -hmm. say that these people believed, at least, Mm -hmm. That they had seen the risen Christ, yeah, and that this uh, and that this creed goes back to a very early time, and mm -hmm. so it's important, I think, to point out what these non-Christian scholars think about this, because whether or not that makes the case itself, it does probably add a little bit of street cred to people who think that when we say, I think this is a common error to think that when you say New Testament scholars, you're talking about only Christian scholars, because yeah. the New Testament is a Christian collection, but of course we know there are atheist Muslim. Hindu, you know, agnostic and Christian New Testament scholars, and so uh, that's that's an important piece that plays into all these points. In fact, I think you could even argue that the majority of New Testament scholars today, at least groups like the SBL and such, are not Orthodox Christians. Yeah, that that actually makes a, a better point. Um. Dr. Hunter? Yeah. You, you just got quiet again. You were talking about, yes, I think it makes it an even more powerful case, and then you kind of muted out some. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but, um, yeah, I think this makes a powerful case because I was just listening to Mike Lycona debate someone a couple of days ago that uh, on YouTube, and, and the atheist was saying, well, you say New Testament scholars are not all Christians, but they're overarchingly Christians. Well, that may be true, but one thing to keep in mind is what you just said. Some of those alleged Christians are extremely liberal Christians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so that's a, that that you know that that is you know I think what the atheist needs to be able to say is that the major is that all of these New Testament scholars are Orthodox Christians, which you can't say that. Yeah, a lot of them would identify themselves as Christians, but they'll say, you know, but Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's not God incarnate, and so, well, you can call yourself something, but don't call yourself a Christian. Right. Now, right. When we're yeah, talking... I think that came very clear in the debate from several years ago between William Lane Craig and John Dominique Crossan, in which John Dominique Crossan, somewhere in there, of course, claiming to be a Christian, though a liberal Christian, um, is challenged by Craig. Craig asks him, do you believe that God existed, say, in the Jurassic period before humans were you know, came along, and he said, 
well, you know, I don't really want to answer that and blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, in some sense, maybe. And, and Craig said, no, I mean, just come on, just come right out and, and say it. What well, do you think that God existed at that time? And he said, well, I'm inclined to say no. Well, then you're just an atheist, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a Christian on, yeah. on, on any orthodox definition of Christianity. Yeah, and including that many of these do come with the idea that miracles don't happen either. I understand some of them are starting to get a little bit different on that one. Some, even if it's Jesus, some are more, more open to miracles and such. But by and large, that is a large assumption. Yes, that's right. And I think someone like Craig Keener, who's written that uh, tome on miracles, is very helpful as a resource for mm-hmm. Christian apologists and, you know, Christian apologists who may even be lay people who want some good uh, good cases for miracles. Craig Keener's book might be a good place to go. Yeah, and if anyone's interested, we did interview Craig Keener on here last year. So, yep, go listen, go to the podcast schedule. Craig Keener's there. You can listen for yourself. But when we're talking about these appearances, you're, um, the immediate pushback is hallucinations. Hallucinations happen all the time. So all these people, they just hallucinated Jesus appearing. Yes, we have a whole section on that in the book. And, of course, you know, what, what good reason do we have to believe that a large group of people would have all hallucinated the same thing? I mean, or, or something extremely similar. At the same time, and at least 500 of them in the same place at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now that that um, that to me uh, is something that I don't think is supportable, and actually um, serves to. I think it's one of those things that kind of takes more faith than <laughs> believing that Jesus actually appeared to them, mm-hmm. uh, and on multiple occasions, and and with groups of people. And uh, so I I don't think that stands up. You know, you could say, well, one person had. Uh, or a few people had some sort of hallucination because of grief or something like that. Um, you know, I, I know that um, some will argue that uh, Paul, for example, and maybe James too, but specifically Paul may have had what's known as conversion disorder, where he experienced an incredible amount of grief over what he had done, and and then as a result had a hallucination, and then went out and uh, became a Christian, uh, and that that all came on because he had recognized that he was doing such horrible things to persecute a group of people. But the fact is, from Paul's own lips, we don't have any reason to believe that he was so grief-stricken prior to. Um, and uh, so I, I don't think that conversion disorder case uh, stands up, and, um, and I don't think the multiple hallucinations stand up. So uh, the only, you know, the, the best case I've heard for that is people say, well, if you look at charismatic groups today, you, you have an example of mass hallucination because people will, uh, or mass delusion anyway, because they'll, a, a group of, a large group of people will think that they saw someone uh, be healed of something and all that. Well, that just begs the question on the one hand of whether that person really did get healed in a particular mm-hmm. setting. And then second, uh, there are a lot of things that play into that that make it not a hallucination or a delusion, even if what happened was not genuinely a miracle. So I've just seen all of these cases for uh, the hallucination and all that sort of thing. I, I just don't buy it, I, I don't, and I don't think that there's really a strong reason to buy it except a presupposition not to accept uh, the truth of the appearances. Well, let's go with another case in the of signs. How about the Fumerian apparitions or the dancing sun cases? 
Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I really covered anything about that in the book, um, I, but I'm sure you've got some good uh, resources to recommend on that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, Jimmy, what I've, is that with a million apparitions, is that first off, it kind of is a begging for question. I expect to say nothing appeared. And second, when you look at these million apparitions, rather, it's not whole crowds that see them, it's sometimes little children that claim to see them, and that kind of gets into a group think after a while. And then uh, Michael says we should be very careful what the differences between an illusion, a delusion, and a hallucination. An illusion right. is like what a magician does on stage. Everyone sees something, but it's not what's it's not really there. Then a delusion is a false belief and a hallucination is seeing something with no external warrant whatsoever for it. Yes, okay, you said a Marian apparition, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, I, I didn't understand what you had said. Yeah, I, and then another thing on that that we have to keep in mind is that uh, for a Christian, I mean, we, we believe within our, within our worldview, within a Christian worldview, we believe that there are all kinds of spiritual forces at work, and um, though this doesn't sound very palatable to a skeptic, the fact is that um, that we believe that uh, that those uh, that there are forces at work that are demonic that are trying to deceive and to confuse. And so, um, what you know, when someone argues that, well, you don't accept such and such supernatural event or appearance that may have happened outside of your evangelical Christian context or something like that. Yeah, you know, I just have to say, well, I don't know that I don't believe those. Things. Right. Maybe those things did happen. It doesn't mean that they were. Uh, that, that that was God or Jesus or actually, you know, you know something like that. So I, I think that all of those things need to play into this. Yeah, I'll say, hey, if you present me a miracle with good evidence for it, I'll believe it. I don't care if it's a Christian context or a Muslim context or anything else. If it's got good evidence and it's backed by it, I can believe it. And if you're arguing from an atheist perspective, I don't see how it helps your case if there's a miracle in another religion. Right. That's right. That's absolutely right. I, you know, and, you know, I think, um, and I, you know, I, I, some people would think, well, you're being a little bit universalistic in this, you know, you're, you're being a little bit of a universalist. I'm not. I think that, that salvation only comes through the name of Jesus. I yep. believe that uh, in Christian exclusivism. Nevertheless, I think supernatural things are happening all the time. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and they're happening sometimes in false religions. The fact that a false religion has something supernatural that happens does not mean, even something miraculous, mm -hmm. does not mean that that supernatural event needs to be discounted. It means the interpretation of it needs to be discounted, or we need to recognize that it was an evil supernatural experience. Mm -hmm. And again, I recognize that all of this sounds like a bunch of hocus-pocus to an atheist, but we're providing evidence and arguing for the truth of these things. And so once you adopt these things, you see that those sort of criticisms, yeah, only count in favor of a supernatural realm. We're, we're about an hour and 20 minutes from the show, so I want to remind everyone that everything we do here, it's supported by donations. I mean, I don't get paid a lick for doing the show, and I don't pay my guests for doing the show. Everyone comes on of their own free time. But the way we keep doing this best is by your financial support. And I really ask that you all consider donating to Deeper Waters. If you go to my blog, deeperwaters.wordpress.com, you'll find a donate tab there, and you can donate there. And uh, 
When you do, that donation goes through Risen Jesus for Ministry of Mike Lacona, and you tell him, hey, this is for Deeper Waters, this is for Nick Peters, he will make sure I get every single penny of that donation, and you'll get a nice little tax deduction for it, because, hey, it's a 501c3. And also, I've recently set up, and I'm still adding works to it, it's small enough, but I've set up on that site an e-store, as well as if you can buy a book there, part of the proceeds of what you buy will go to Deeper Waters, and including Core Facts is up there. So if you buy Core Facts with a Deeper Waters e-store, we'll get part of that coming in. And of course, I'd like to point you to a resource I've had come out recently, Defining Inerrancy, written by myself and my ministry co-partner, J.P. Holding, a response to Norm Geisler in defense of Michael Kona, which has been positively reviewed by Dan Walsh, critically reviewed negatively by James White, but aware it happens. I found it rather amusing, actually. And so I'd really encourage you to get that book, and remember, part of that goes to help deeper waters as well. And uh, Dr. Hunter, do you have any way that people can support you and what you do? Sure. Um, my ministry is called Trinity Crusades for Christ, and it is an arm of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. So far, I, I have not received a penny from uh, the sales of core facts, even though we've sold quite a few of them, because we just use any money that, uh, that we bring in through, uh, through our resources like that uh, just to further our evangelistic apologetics ministry. And um, I'm speaking in churches uh, regularly. And so buying that book will really be helpful. Buying Death is a Doorway, my previous book, would be really helpful. Um, and, uh, and you can make donations directly if you want to uh, at uh, BraxtonHunter.com, mm -hmm. or which is B-R-A-X-T-O-N-H-U-N-T-E-R.com, or at TrinitySem.edu. That's Trinity, S-E-M, well, for seminary, .edu, okay. TrinitySem.edu. And we have a blog on there that, that you can uh, also uh, find some things on, on the Trinity website. Okay. Well, now let's move on ahead and go to the C in facts, which is commitment. Okay. What are we talking about? On the C, on, commit, on the commitment level of the early church, and we're not just talking about uh, the apostles here, um, I think it's important to point out, and this is a point, Nick, that I know you're aware of. But so often, Christian apologists themselves, budding Christian apologists, tend to make a mistake here and say mm -hmm. that, um, well, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's, a, it's bad form to say this, that, that we can demonstrate that uh, these, these people who were original witnesses absolutely died um, for their faith. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you, can, you can't say that with certainty with all that. What you should say is they're will, they were willing to die for their faith. And, of course, we do know that many Christians in the first century did die for their faith. But it, I think it's important to make that point that they were willing to die because we can absolutely demonstrate that. And they were willing to die for something that, if it was not true, that is to say, if they didn't have reason to believe in the appearances, if they didn't see the appearances, and yet they died anyway or were willing to die anyway, then they were willing to die for something that they would have known was a lie. Or by extension, people that weren't there uh, at the appearances were willing to die for something that they had no good reason to believe was the truth. Now, um, and so this counts in favor, I think, of, of 
the resurrection case. Now, what some will say is, hey, look, we have plenty of examples of people dying for things that are not true. The classic example is those flying planes into towers on September 11th. Those were Muslims dying for a lie. The fact is, those Muslims were dying for a lie, but as far as they were concerned, it wasn't a lie. They genuinely believed it. Mm -hmm. But this is not the case with the early church, who would have been dying for something that they were in a position to know whether or not it was true, and then died for it anyway. And that's just not something that people do. And so uh, this is a piece of data, I think, in favor of the case. And, and one, one thing that I often use uh, as an example here is, if you and I, Nick, were having a conference together, and we were both on stage, and uh, someone came in and shot you, and, and we, let's say we made up a faith. We wanted to make this something up, and we were going to fabricate a faith. And we said someone came in and shot you, and we only believe what you say at the conference. Um, you're dropping out again. I don't know what making it up. Um, I'm sorry? You, you're dropping out again. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't really know what to do about that. Okay. But, um, Okay, what what we're saying is that we're in a church together, and someone comes in and shoots me. So I'm not liking the story so far, but go ahead. It turns out good for you in the end, Nick. But we're, we're let's just imagine that we're at a conference together, and everyone at the conference, all the people listening, and you and I, we all agree that we're going to make up a religion. And so here's what we're going to say: We're all going to leave the conference saying that someone came in and shot you in the head. And then in about an hour's time, we saw that bullet hole close, and you stand up and walk out of the room. And let's imagine that this, this new religion that we've created, uh, that we call Petersism or something like that, is, um, is, is really taking off. I mean, we've got book deals. We're on the Today Show. We're on Good Morning America. And we're all becoming very rich and wealthy off of this. And it's really taking off. The moment somebody comes, catches me in a dark alley after being in a studio or something, and says, hey, listen, you need to deny this belief in Nick Petersism or else I'm going to shoot you in the head. Just go ahead and admit that you made it all up. I'm going to admit very, very quickly that this never happened and that we fabricated the, old, the whole thing. And the reason for that is people live for a lie so long as it brings them money, power, sex, things like that. But the moment that it's going to cost them their own lives, People get honest real quick about things that they made up or that they knew were made up. And so this is just a piece of the case that is often there, I think, counts strongly in favor of the resurrection, that we had a community of people who were willing to die for something that many of them would have known was false and been willing to die for it anyway. I just don't think that happens. Yeah, and uh, so you know, thinking, yeah, my wife's in the next room, and if you wanted to start and you claim that I was some sort of messiah, I think she would, she would be very quick to give some good testimonial evidence against that. <laughs> uh, speaking yeah. of, uh, we'll, we'll make sure that if this religion really does take off, we get her on the program. Yeah, but uh, speaking of this uh, testimonial evidence, let's go to the T, testimony. What are we talking about? In the T, this is very much like the E in core facts. The T now, as we're drawing the case to a close, is really to point out, in summary, well, it serves two purposes. One purpose is to, is to make some summary statements about the fact that many non-religious or uh, people of opposing religions, uh, scholars from these backgrounds, affirm the points that we presented in the facts on Jesus, mm -hmm. um, that they affirm that he died by Roman crucifixion. They affirm that 
at least a large number of people believed that he had appeared to them, and uh, and were and will admit that that these people uh, were willing to die for that belief. And so we're we're pulling out people throughout history and, and modern scholars who agree with all those points, and pointing out that. Uh, in a, and this is another one that would be a good piece for a cumulative case kind of approach, is to say that, look, um, this is not a slam dunk on its own. But we're talking about a man in Jesus who never traveled, as far as we know, very far away from his homeland, never really wrote anything down, as far as we know, um, actually told people often not to say anything about what happened to them, and yet this man has become the centerpiece of all of history. This man has influenced people to uh, begin scientific discoveries and, and institutions of scientific discovery. And entire uh, uh, cultures have been changed as early churches planted uh, uh, communities of faith in some of the biggest metropolises in the known world at the time in only the next few centuries after this happened. And yet today it's still making an impact. And so uh, the testimony of world history, the testimony of scholars on this, and the testimony, of course, of believers from the experiences they have in their own life, it is that all of this that we're presenting is true. I say it's a summary case because we're just pointing out the truth of what we've already said and that this is not something that only Christian theists believe, but that secular scholars believe too. They just don't make the final step to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. Then the second thing that it serves to do uh, with the T in, in facts is to say that this is a great opportunity for you to share your own testimony. Because remember, Nick, as you, as you said, you know, some of these things might make us a little bit queasy if we were presenting them in debate on a stage at Oxford or something. But we're using the core facts case for personal evangelism. And I think a great piece of personal evangelism is sharing your personal testimony. So when you share the testimony of the world and the testimony of scholarship, I think a great thing to do then is to share your own personal testimony of what Christian theism has done for your life and what, and not just what it's done in terms of you getting benefits from it, but, but the truth that you have come to recognize from it. And your Christian walk and your journey with the Lord. And that sort of thing, I think, then adds a personal element since this is a personal evangelism mm -hmm. strategy. Yeah, I'm thinking about a time I was discussing with someone on a forum who was saying that, you know, if Christianity is true, God could have done a whole, a much better job of getting the word out there about Jesus than he did. And I said, look, here we are, it's about 2,000 years later, we're on the other side of the globe, 2 billion people believe something that happened thousands of miles away long, long ago. I think he did a pretty good job getting the word out. <laughs> That's right. And you know, really, Nick, uh, that's why I think so many Christian apologists, myself included, when someone says something like that, we say, well, what else do you want? I mean, what kind of evidence are you looking for? Because whatever kind of evidence you want, Christian apologists are prepared to provide that kind of evidence. Mm -hmm. And that's because, as G.K. Chesterton, I think, once said, any, anything you want to talk about, whether, you know, you can talk about a tree, you can talk about a computer, you can talk about NASA, whatever you want to talk about, talk about it long, long enough, uh, you get back to God. <laughs> and yeah. so I think that there's good evidence and there's a good reason to believe in every aspect of reality. And, and um, you know, I was, when I was debating with Will on Internet Radio on our podcast, Trinity 
Trinity Radio, um, which is available at our website, rackcenter.com. Uh, I remember he, I, I asked him that question. He said, what would it take for you to believe? What kind of evidence are you looking for? And he said, no evidence would be good enough. He was very honest about this. He said, because if God appeared to me in the sky and wrote in, in the sky with letters, you know, Will, I really exist. This is God. He said, I'd be more inclined to believe that was an alien race doing that because at least then I would have a naturalistic explanation and wouldn't have to punt to the spiritual. And I thought to myself, well, if, that, if, that's, the, if that's where you are, then when, is, when do we get to the point where we're casting pearls before swine and this is just a fruitless discussion? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because someone has already decided, come what may, I'm going to be a skeptic. You know, you're no longer really examining the evidence, thing because you've already decided beforehand what it's going to be. Right. right. Now, let's go into the S, salvation. Okay, what does this have to do with this? Well, because this is a personal evangelism strategy, I thought that the best way to close it out would be to have a personal invitation for an individual to place their faith in Christ on the basis of all these things that get discussed in the core facts. And in fact, uh, for those that purchase the book, um, there, is a, uh, there is an easy reference guide in, as an appendix in the back of the book that has just one or two pages where they can walk through and have talking points on each of these uh, letters in the core facts across it. And so when you come to salvation, you've got that too. And um, on that, uh, we really want to share with people that if God exists, and if Jesus rose from the dead, then we should probably believe uh, the message of, of Christianity and believe the message that, uh, that, that Jesus came to preach. Mm -hmm. And so we sh the most reasonable thing, not the emotional thing to do, although emotion is a part of it, not the, not the uh, ooey-gooey sort of evangelical Christian TV preacher thing to do, but the intellectual, the reasonable thing to do now is to place your faith in Jesus Christ and become a mm -hmm. Christian. And, um, and, and so I always invite people to do that at the end of a presentation. I'm the only person I know of who, when he had a debate on the evidence for God's existence, after it was all over, wouldn't debate unless the preacher at the church where the debate was being held would allow me to give a gospel invitation. I mean, full-blown altar call. <laughs> we mm -hmm. had atheists get saved. And so, um, so I think a good way to close is with that appeal for people to place their faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. Well... I've uh, left some time here because I want us to get to talk about your debate with this atheist, Will. Uh, how did this all get started? Well, the debate with Will is one of, is really the only debate that I've ever had that was a written debate. It was mm -hmm. not, um, it was not live anywhere, public. And it was because it was when I first had come up with this Corfax acrostic, I wanted to find a debating partner that I could that I could try it out with, um, and who would be willing to do it, you know, for free, and we, you know, it'd be easy to set up. And so, um, but I, but I really got fortunate because what I ended up getting was uh, the administrator of a very uh, well-known uh, atheist forum, which is called um, HappyAtheistForum.com or .org or something. I think I have it in the book, maybe. But um, but Will is the administrator there and had a Lutheran pastor for a father, and had at some point rejected the faith. Well, in, um, I, had, I had put the word out that I was looking for someone to debate on, on Trinity Radio about this, and Will agreed to do that and accepted to do that. 
And so we did that, and the whole debate was posted on his forum. And to this day, that debate, as it is in Core Facts, the book, still is, well, I shouldn't say to this day, at least as recently as last week, it was still up on happyatheistforum.com and had had thousands of people had, had read it. And um, I think that serves as a powerful witness, too. But so, so Will has um, uh, some interest in philosophy and all these sorts of things and makes it his daily interest to, um, to debate these things. And so I thought that's just perfect because he's probably going to be a little bit more like the sort of atheist that uh, Will on the Internet, on Facebook, or in our daily lives. And so uh, he just became a perfect candidate for this. Mm-hmm. Now, what are, are, are your opinions of a debate? I mean, what, what do you notice about Will's arguments? Well, I think you summarized what Will did uh, very well in your review on the debate, but um, there was a lot of question begging. You know, uh, you know, for example, one of the things he did was a common new atheist tactic of explaining how it is theoretically possible uh, for theistic beliefs to emerge purely via superstition with early man. So, mm-hmm. for example, he points out, and this is really his argument, this and the problem of evil is really his argument uh, uh, across the board. And I, I, frankly, I don't think there are too many uh, atheistic arguments at, at the disposal of the atheist. But he says um, with, the, with his naturalistic approach that you might have a a chieftain in some long-ago tribe who, uh, you know, uh, goes out and on a particular sunny day, he is successful in a hunting endeavor. And um, he begins to think about it and thinks, wow, you know, the the sun was just right, you know, maybe, I I may not be getting his case exactly, but it's basically this. So maybe the the, sun found approval in what I did. And so then that night he, he prays, uh, for a successful day in the day to come. And in the next day, he has success again. Um, and so he begins to develop a superstition around this natural phenomenon. And then you have Christian theism is born. Mm-hmm. And so he says, look, this could happen. Therefore, that's what happened, which mm-hmm. I think is a huge unfounded leap because I agreed with him in the debate that, yeah, sure. I mean, I have no doubt that that is exactly how some versions of theism have emerged through superstition. But that is not enough to say that that is how theism, qua theism, emerges across the board, right? So, right. Um, so I think uh, I think that there's a lot of question begging like that, and um, a lot of, you know, I want to be fair because Will's a really nice guy, but I, I think that there's a certain point where um, the atheist just gets more dug in, like we said, and just says, "I'm committed here. Anything you say, I'm gonna I'm gonna reject," and we saw a lot of that too. I find there is often a strong fundamentalism, actually, in the atheist community. I can point out that uh, atheists approach this mindset, they approach evidence the same way as a Christian. They they, uh, read the Bible the same way as a Christian. They just disagree on the conclusions that we reach, but the mindset is still exactly the same. Right. And the worst thing that can happen, I think, happened in that exchange with Will, where you had an individual who remembered what he believed when he was a Christian 
and then tried to force every Christian into that framework. Um, you'll recall, since I know you read it, he, he said, well, you know, faith is a blind leap, you know, in, into something that you have no evidence for, and that's what faith is. And I kept arguing, well, no, that's, that's not what biblical faith is, not as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, uh, that Christianity is very open to evidence. I think that's one of the reasons that Christianity has been uh, classically successful uh, in spreading even in a Western context where there's an open marketplace of ideas. We don't need to shut off all of the religions like we might have to do for Islam in Istanbul or something. I mean, we, you know, we're happy to have an open marketplace of ideas because we're confident that Christianity will win on the evidence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he kept trying to say, no, 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 it's blind faith, it's pediism. And, and I said, well, look, you know, here's an example of some churches that have rejected pediism. And he says, well, yeah, but that's still Christian theism. And I gave him some biblical evidence for that theism isn't, isn't, uh, isn't what Christians believe in. And he just kept plugging his ears and saying, no, if you're a Christian, you've got to be a theist. And I'm saying, well, look, regardless of what you think about what Christians have to believe, I'm a Christian. I'm the one debating with you. I'm not a theist. Now let's talk about the evidence. And so we saw exactly what you're talking about, which was him trying to incorporate what he believed Christians had to believe, or at least what he believed when he was a Christian, uh, and did the same thing with young earth creationism. And so I, I, I think that was a big problem throughout the debate that he wouldn't let go of. It's a, a case of, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> right, right. In, in, yeah, that's right. And you know one of the great things about that debate, Nick, is that at the end, I got to give a gospel presentation, sort of, you know, I gave the S in core facts. Uh, at the time, it was, I, I had it as solution and not salvation like I do now, but I gave a presentation of the gospel and encouraged people to place their faith in Christ, and it is the last thing in that thread, and it's a closed thread, mm-hmm. and it's been up there for several years now on that forum, and everyone that reads it on that very atheist forum, the last thing they read in that debate is an appeal uh for someone to accept faith in Jesus Christ. And so I, I think that's a powerful example of what we're trying to do with the book overall. Yeah. What do you think, and I was out of people out there who might be scared to engage with an atheist, because usually an atheist is mostly seen as rational, intelligent, reasonable, and how could I possibly dialogue with someone like that? Well, I think that um, the first way to begin is to educate yourself. Uh, Not everyone has to be a Ph.D. in apologetics, but they can still educate themselves um, by reading a book like Core Facts or other books by other people you've had on your show Mm -hmm. and uh, reading your books and and get a knowledge of these things. That's the first thing to do. But the second thing, I think, is just go ahead and get started now, I, I wouldn't encourage someone to jump in who had no preparation whatsoever. That's why, obviously, on deeper waters, you want to encourage people to, to prepare themselves. Right. But I'd say once you've done that, jump in, and yeah, you're going to make some mistakes. You're going to get yep. lumps on the head. And the way to prepare uh, for that is to say to the skeptic you're talking to, I may not have all the answers, but I commit to you that I will be willing to find the answers if I don't have them. Mm-hmm. And that really covers you to come back in a later conversation with those answers. Yeah, and I'd also think it's really important that people are surround themselves with other Christians who can be good disciplers of them, who can help them into this 
days to, I have a someone who I consider a mentor who disciples me regularly. And I, I email them every night, and it's a great help. And I try to make it my point to be discipling others as well. Yes. Yeah, I thought I lost you there for a minute. But yes, I, in fact, you know, I know one of the things that you probably are passionate about, like me and like most Christian apologists, is I'd love to see the day when every local church has a Christian apologist on, you know, on staff or at least as a member of that church who is teaching these things regularly uh, because I, I just think it is a, it's somewhat of a lost art. And one of the reasons I think it's a lost art is because, you know, um, during the 20th century, uh, you know, go back to the 1950s, at least in middle America, in places like that, you, nobody knew any atheists. I mean, there might be atheists in the world, but they're in godless New York or California or somewhere like that, right? They're not going to be in my town. And so everyone that you knew, whether they were a Christian or not, knew that you better live for God or else he's going to thump you on the head one day, right? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the, 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 you know, the cultural framework because Christianity was still on people's minds as the, you know, if you're religious, this is what you're going to be. That is not the case anymore the way it was then. We are in a culture that is increasingly like the first century culture to whom Peter wrote uh, with 1 Peter 3.15, encouraging them to be prepared to give an answer. And so mm-hmm. um, I, I think that sort of discipleship needs to take place, and I want to see the day when Christian apologetics is a part of that discipleship in, the, in every local church. Uh, I have that dream greatly of... Christian projects, we see them in space, because there are many, many people in churches who are struggling with doubt, and they don't know that people like you and I exist, who are supposed to go out there and help them deal with that doubt, and when they give us, where was this all my life? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You're absolutely right, and it's a sad state of affairs, but you know, one of the great things about apologetics experiencing a golden age like it sort of is right now oh, yeah. um, is that those resources are out there so, and, and are so ubiquitous that they are available. And so that's why I appreciate a show like yours mm-hmm. where you, you you try to make those things available. Yeah, I really do believe we are on the verge of a golden age of apologetics. And I, I get hope for me raise my look at the way the world is, because I, mean, I have these debates where people say, the world is so dark right now. I say, yes, it's very dark, and that's the perfect time of the light to really start shining. And just in a blog right. I wrote yesterday with a response to James Wyatt about what he said about my book with uh, J.P. Holding, he said, you know, what it's going to take is that Christians can start changing their country overnight if they would just get up and start moving and doing something because whenever we start acting we do get results yes and I think that's one of the reasons we really need to push back against this idea that mm-hmm. apologetics is so complicated right that it can't be a, that, that someone with a high school education can't can't pick it up and run with it because right. I think you can I mean my book other books that you've mm-hmm. pushed you know, William Lane Craig's book On Guard is, is intended for the, you know, the, yeah. the, the least trouble books. There are such, there are such good simplified books on this that if you're out there and you're a, 
uh, you know, a 15-year-old boy or someone who is a 60-year-old but uh, has, has never really felt like you could do this because it's too complicated or whatever. Listen, there is no, there is, and anybody in between, there is no reason why you should let that stand in the way. That is something that the enemy capitalizes on in our day, I think, among Christians to keep us from doing this. Yeah, we've talked about Michael Kona on here with some, and I think he'd probably look at me and say, yeah, my son-in-law, he's naturally an intellectual, naturally an academic. He's got a natural bent towards this, but then he'd also be first to say, I'm not an academic, or at least that wasn't my bent. I'm, uh, that wasn't the way I was going, and he's reached the point that he's at in his life now because even though it wasn't his natural bent, he worked darn hard at it because he wanted the answers. And that's not saying everyone out there is supposed to be Michael Cohen or something, but it's saying that even if you're not intellectually bent, even if you're not academically gifted or inclined in any ways, you can still at least learn the basics. I'm doing. I mean, yeah, you might go all the way like he did and get a PhD and become a major employer, but every Christian needs to have at least the basics. Absolutely, <clears throat> absolutely, that, and that's what we're really trying to accomplish with this book, and um, and then of course, if you want to go a little bit deeper, there's there's some ways to do that in the book too, but that that's the goal. And for me, again, I I want to stress this: mm-hmm. evangelism is the goal for me. Mm-hmm. I'm an evangelist before I'm an apologist. Mm-hmm. I'm proud to be a Christian apologist, but I'm an evangelist before I'm an apologist. I want to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. I don't just want to argue for the sake of arguing. You know, I, I say this with my co-host on our podcast all the time, Jonathan Pritchett. I, I point out to him that, uh, that and, and he agrees, that a lot of the time Christian apologetics books are read by a couple of guys in their mid-30s or 40s in a local church who have jobs, and, they, and then they talk about them with their other buddies in church that like apologetics after the service, and it's fun for them. They might listen to some debates. But that's as far as it goes. They never use it for anything. And I'm saying we can use it. Lay people can use it to reach their friends and loved ones for the Lord Jesus Christ and see them come to faith. You know, you talked about Geisler. um, And um, Norman Geisler and his son several years ago wrote a book, uh, or maybe his son just wrote the book, on calling apologetics pre-evangelism. And in a certain respect it is, because a lot of the time these discussions are going to take um, a lot longer than just that first encounter um, at, in order for someone to, to come around and accept the truth. Although I have seen it happen mm-hmm. with the first encounter, so, so that bears to be mentioned too. But, um, and so I guess in a certain respect it can be pre-evangelistic, but here's the deal. A good apologetic presentation, I think, my apologetic, will always include a discussion of the resurrection and or divinity of Jesus Christ. And, um, and the nature of the gospel and, and the importance of accepting that. And if you're doing that, if you're sharing, that is the good news. I mean, if you're sharing the good news, you're doing evangelism. So I think there's much too, mm-hmm. much too stiff of a wall being placed between these two disciplines um, if there should be a wall there at all, even by Christian apologists. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to stress that. That, that, is, that is one of the, uh, one of the things we're trying to accomplish with our ministry. I, I appreciate what you're doing, and I know Jonathan Pritchett pretty good. We've had some good interactions and such, and so it, it's great to hear that you two are working together on something. 
Well, Jonathan Pritchett and I are two sides of a coin, and we've only been working together for about three months now. Uh, he just went with me to a debate that I had in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, a couple of weeks ago. But um, we work together really well because uh, he's willing to say some things and maybe in a more blunt way than, mm. than I would, even though he's a gentleman. Yeah. He says things in a more blunt and direct way than I would. And then, and then I say things sometimes in a, more, in, in a more softer way than he would. And so the two of us together make, I think, uh, a great cocktail of approaches that, so, that, so that whoever you are, we're, we're, we'll be able to uh, have a good conversation one way or the other. Yeah, that, that's my style also. I'm a more blunt one. So when Allie and I work together, I, I often say, I'm the head, she's the heart. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. That's good. That's yeah. good. Well, we've only got a few minutes left, so I'd like to let people know that your book, Core Facts, it's available on Kindle for three ninety nine. You can get it on paperback for fifteen twenty six. And remind everyone, if you go through the Deeper Waters e-store and get it, we will get some proceeds from it. So, I mean, if you're going to go that way, why not go that way and help out a ministry at the same time? So, um, if uh, people are wanting to know more about you, Dr. Henry, and the work that you're doing, do you have a blog or a website they can go to? Yes, um, I have a blog on BraxtonHunter.com. If you go to BraxtonHunter.com, you can learn more about me, but then also you'll, there'll be links to debates I've had and our podcast as well. Um, and we have uh, lots and lots of episodes, hours and hours on there if people want to listen. But really, my, the, the blog I'm most active on is at trinitysem.edu, trinitysem.edu. If you go there, that's the school, and the bottom left-hand corner is a link to the blog. And we have videos on apologetic issues. The podcast gets posted there, too. We have articles, not just by me, but by our students and by our faculty. And so maybe you're into Christian counseling. Maybe you're into pastoral ministry. Maybe you're into apologetics. All of that stuff is there. Uh, for you to interact with and uh, really dig deep with it. Also, I'd be happy to, to come and, and speak at churches. And uh, like I said, I'm an evangelist. I'm one of the few apologists that I know of who still has Sunday through Wednesday, old-timey revival-type thing going on. And so uh, a lot of times we, we roll that into an apologetics conference. And so uh, uh, if, if you maybe you want to have an apologetics conference, but you want to also have an evangelistic event, I preach my apologetics, and then we give an altar call, and people come to faith in Christ. And so um, so we can do all that together at once, and you can contact me for that to set that up. I don't charge anything to come. Just whatever you all do is fine. And um, and uh, we, you can contact us at trinitysim.edu for that or braxtonhunter.com. Now, we've only got about three minutes or so left in the show. So is there any final message you'd like to leave for the audience? Well, I've really gotten a chance to do that already a little bit, but, but my message is, again, just this. If you feel like these things are too complicated, or if apologetics is merely a hobby for you, it shouldn't be. You shouldn't view it that way. This is something that God wants you to be involved in as a part of your ministry, uh, and, um, and, it, and I think it should be used for the purpose of evangelism. Can it be used to bolster the faith of individuals who are saved but are doubting? Absolutely. That's how many apologists get started in their ministries, but it should be used for evangelism as far as I'm concerned. And we should all be evangelists and all be apologists in that way and pick up core facts as a way of getting started down that road. Well, I know I'd like to thank you for coming on. 
the show today. It's been a very interesting conversation. Well, thank you for having me, Nick. I really appreciate your ministry, too, and I thank can't you. wait to see what God does with you thank in your you. theological work in the future. And I'd like to remind everyone that we're going to have Dr. Donald Williams coming on next week. We're going to talk, be talking about his book, Mere Humanity. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. It's here, the official Brock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite Brock Radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store, or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Rock Radio.